A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, You fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to the court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 87%. 87% of our mental life. That is the proportion that one of my favorite writers wages that we spend winning imaginary arguments that are never actually going to take place. 87% of our inner life occupied rehearsing accusations and conflicts, starring ourselves usually as the innocent victim and casting our antagonist as a villain driven by unilateral motiveless malice. I think it's more like 95%. And I say that... um, not to be contrarian, but simply because we live in such, in a culture and society and um, world that is just besieged with anger and rage, uh, so much so that it's very difficult to imagine what life would be like without it. I think that part of this has to do uh, with the internet, maybe the increase from 87 to 95. The internet, as we know, which which launders our outrage and returns it to us as validation. We love it. But because we're so occupied by anger, and because it's everywhere, you hear people say things about healthy anger, talking about channeling your anger in a productive way, embracing your anger. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot to be upset about. And you don't have to go to Capitol Hill You can just walk into this church. You can walk into my house. You can walk into your own bedroom. There's a lot to be angry about. However, when it comes to healthy anger or embracing your anger, we are not on the same page as Jesus. In the passage Margaret just read from the Sermon on the Mount, it's a tough passage It's a really tough passage. And he is equating anger with murder. Very clearly. He's saying to be angry is to murder someone. And he then elevates interpersonal reconciliation above worship. In other words, if there's someone out there that has something against you, that's upset with you, you need to deal with that before you come here. So I'm just going to assume that all of you don't have anyone who's upset with you. It's, it's tough to preach to, you know, a 
packed room full of saints. But I'll do it. I'll try. I kid, I kid, I kid. Um, Jesus is saying that now is the time. If there is someone has something against you, now is the time. Not later, not when circumstances align. If you don't get the problem of unforgiveness worked out now, you may die, and then it'll be too late. To be clear, this is less of an injunction to forgive, those come other places, than to reconcile, to initiate reconciliation, which is another way of saying to apologize. He is telling us that we need to apologize, and we need to do it now. Now, we know that apologies are a good thing. I think anyone who's been on the receiving end of a really good apology knows that it's a very healing and rare occurrence. A therapist once told me that she would be out of business if parents just learned to say two words to their children. I'm sorry. And if any of you have had parents who've ever apologized to you, you know how healing that can be. It's very powerful. And yet, life uh, in an angry, rage-filled world is much more marked by a lack of apology. Why don't we apologize? Why don't other people apologize to us? Well, I have a few reasons I'll give you, a few theories. First of all, we don't apologize, we don't reconcile because we like feeling angry. We like feeling sorry for ourselves. Hurt feels terrible, but anger gives us control. Frederick Buechner, the great um, sort of Protestant writer, he said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you were given and the pain you were given back, in many ways it is a feast for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. So unlike other avenues of pleasure, things that feel good that Jesus is going to talk about right afterwards, anger is a little bit more insidious because we don't consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. Maybe we do a little bit when we're talking about reality TV and we talk about the characters we love to hate. Or maybe we do it a little bit with hate watching these days. You know, maybe you're a person who has two news channels you watch, one where you get the honest truth and one that just makes your blood boil, but for some reason it also makes you feel really self-righteous and smug and you love it. Why are you watching that? You seem so upset. Well, I got to know. I got to know what the other side's saying. It's very important. Why? Um, you like feeling angry. You're just like everyone else in our cultural milieu. You like doing the backstroke in a sea of self-righteousness. <laughs> Picture it. Um, anger, what Beekner's saying, and what I want to say to you tonight is that it's like a weapon that you point at another person but always ricochets back at you. Secondly, though, we don't apologize, and other people don't apologize to us because apologies are threatening. They uh, diminish us. 
It involves a giving up of power, a supplicating position towards another person. It involves a surrender of rights. And if the culture tells us anything, it's that you should never, ever, ever surrender your rights. Harriet Lerner is a psychologist who just wrote a book called Why Won't You Apologize? It's really good. It's super short, and I think it's really helpful. I'm drawing on it a little bit here. She writes when she talks about the threat that people feel when it comes to apologies. She says, non-apologizers tend to walk on a tightrope of defensiveness above a huge canyon of low self-esteem. They just can't listen to anything that's going to set them off balance. So there's a cost involved with giving an apology. It may be an emotional cost. It may be an actual financial cost. There may be some restitution involved. Maybe you suspect that someone wants you to apologize, not for something you've done, but basically for who you are. There's nothing you could apologize short of that. And that feels futile and really sad. And so you don't do it. Thirdly, we don't apologize because oftentimes we're waiting for that other person to apologize to us first. The blame is very seldom totally cut and dry. There's usually percentages involved. Well, yeah, I was wrong, but she contributed. You know, uh, this standoff, I'll I'll say I'm sorry right when, when you're ready to. One, two, three, go. Never happens. We, we wait, we, we make apologies about a, an exchange, and there's something dishonest about that. I'll only apologize if you apologize. You build in a condition. And if you apologize for the right thing. Instead of listening to the exaggerations, the errors, the distortions that our accusers always pack into their apologies or their accusations, A real apology demands that we listen differently, that we listen for what we can agree with and apologize for that piece first. So even when the offended party is largely at fault, apologizing for one's own part in whatever incident, however small it may be, is the place to start. We don't like doing this because it cuts through the myth of our own blamelessness. And so we don't apologize. Fourth, we're, we're um, afraid that the other person won't accept our apology, especially when it comes to the big things. It's a legitimate fear because people often don't accept apologies for the big things. But Christ himself is not concerned with that. He doesn't have a command for the other person, at least not here. He has a command for you and me. If someone has something against you, You need to say you're sorry, and you need to do it now. If you want to know how to apologize, I'll give you a couple pointers. You're not going to follow them, but, you know, I might as well try. Um, The best apologies are short and don't include explanations that undo them. If you want to apologize for something, don't add on a but or an if. I'm sorry I forgot your birthday, but I was stressed out with work. I'm sorry if that joke I made offended you. That turns a sorry into a not sorry. Or maybe uh, don't um, link your apology to a request for forgiveness. I am so sorry 
Will you please forgive me? Eh, don't do it. Just let it hang out there. Don't force them to respond. Because then all of a sudden it becomes like, well, you didn't forgive me. You got to apologize for that. What I'm trying to say is that a sincere apology, at least an effective one, lacks defensiveness. If anything is added on to I'm sorry, it's I'm sorry for dot, dot, dot. Not I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry if. Okay, so the moral of the story here is that we all need to initiate reconciliation and apologies, and we need to do it right now. I could keep going. I could tell you, and I will tell you right now, that if you're known as a non-apologizer, if people have said that about you, you have a serious spiritual problem. It's not something to laugh at, actually. That's deadly. I could tell you that a Christian is someone who looks for things to apologize for, rather than for what other people need to apologize to them for. But I'm not sure how helpful that is. Because this is uh, the height of um, counterintuitive and even backfiring, potentially backfiring information I'm giving you. Because we don't say sorry when we're told to. We almost never do. When do you say sorry? Well, if the law tells us to apologize now, to reconcile before it's too late, the gospel tells us that God has reconciled himself to you already. This is extremely good news for people who are bad at apologies. The hard part's already behind us. Give you a picture of this and then I'm finished. In This American Life, the radio show, episode 432, Know When to Fold Him. It's great, great uh, episode all about apologize. David Dickerson, the memoirist, writes about his return to the religious home that he had shunned for six years. He is very bitter about his conservative upbringing, and so he comes back from college ready to exact revenge on the faith that he grew up in, particularly on the father whose faith he felt had failed him. And so he says, Dad, when I get home, I'd like to take you out to breakfast. And so the two men go and have breakfast. They sit down. And as soon as they sit down, they've barely ordered before David unloads an avalanche of historical criticism and Richard Dawkins quotations and positivistic arguments of all shapes and sizes. David cannot stand the existence of the simplistic faith that he felt had been shot down in his own life. As for his father, he could have very easily pulled out his own weapons. He's got arguments too. I guarantee it. I know it. It was a surprise attack, but let's do this thing. This has been building for six years. It's time. Time for me to set my wayward son straight in that school that I pay for for some reason. But instead, Dickerson tells us that he just kind of quietly let me do my thing. You see, David's father did not retaliate, but he also didn't retreat. He let his son exhaust all of his aggression. He absorbed the malicious tirade in toto. He allowed himself to be utterly defeated. 
But that's not all he did. When I'd finally settled down and, you know, gotten my peace out, my father looked me in the eye and said, David, I want you to know that I'm really proud of everything you've done. What? Incredibly compassionate. Clearly non-premeditated. David's father had not only let his son completely blow a fuse, but he had then followed it up by speaking a word of affirmation to him. This is what we call grace. And it can't be coerced. But we know it when we see it. We know it when we experience. And this kind of compassion has an effect on David where he realizes in that moment that he is being a quote-unquote complete and utter jack wagon. And he asks for forgiveness from his dad. He says, I'm sorry. You see, it turns out that David's father, perhaps in those six years, who knows, had maybe internalized a little bit more of his faith than David had given him credit for. Or maybe this was just a fluke, Holy Spirit thing in a diner. But he didn't just choose not to fight back. He allowed himself to be buried by his aggressor so that his aggressor might be lifted up. He not only relinquishes any backbiting reaction he might have to his son's impudence, he affirms the boy who's pointing a metaphorical gun at his head. He tells his son that he's proud of him. This is what we call atoning sacrifice, atoning love, excuse me. Atoning love is the sort of love that sacrifices itself, that dies. David sums it up best. He said, I had sort of expected to argue or at least come to some kind of armistice where we're like, well, we'll agree to disagree, but I see your point. I hadn't expected to lose completely because you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with goodness. Because make no mistake, it wasn't an armistice that had been reached. This was, as David himself says, a communion. This gracious father who looks at his son and says, my son is home and I love him without qualification or cause. I love him with the gun in my face. I want him at my table. Now, you may not have the wherewithal to do anything close to what David's father did with those who are accusing you. I understand. I, I couldn't either. These are one in a million stories. But what do we do then with our outrage and accusation? Well, I'll tell you one thing we did do with it. We turned it on Jesus Christ himself. And we let it follow him all the way to the grave. This God, this man who surrendered his prerogatives, who made restitution on behalf of those who didn't deserve second chance, who loved his enemies completely, both the bad apologizers and the non-apologizers, who made the first step and the second step, third step, and the last step. So much so that I can look you in the eye this evening and say with confidence that not only, no matter what 
you've done, no matter what accusations you harbor or others harbor against you, God is not angry with you. He says to you the same thing that he said, that David's father said. He said, son, I forgive you. In fact, I'm proud of you. Amen.